Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is Spencer Martin, your host and author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. Professional cycling is back, so I am back breaking it down, watching it so you don't have to. This week, we are talking about, we have this uh, just flurry of races coming thick and fast. The Saudi Tour, I'm going on, obviously, in Saudi Arabia. And then we have two European stage races, which aren't, I would not say are wildly important, but have some pretty stacked fields and pretty interesting things to watch. We have the Etoile de Bessege in southern France and the, I'll just call it the Volta Valencia. I, I, there's a, it's, a, it's a long, confusing name. I've, I'm never quite sure how to shorten it. We're just calling it the Volta Valencia in Spain. It's got Remco Evenepoel. It's got Alexander Vlasov, Enric Mas, Pelo Bibal, Alejandro Valverde, Jakob Fulsang. This is, a, this is a stacked field. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition if you like the podcast. That's a no-brainer. Sign up right now. There's a paid edition that comes out daily during Grand Tours, breaks down every major race, comes out thrice weekly during non-Grand Tour weeks. Um, good stuff in there. Also some discounts for like stages cycling, fast cat coaching, curate clothing, beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right. So the racing. Let's start with the Saudi Tour. I've been, I, I wake up just to walk everyone through what how I'm watching these races. I wake up very early and I go down into the, into the command center, into the dashboard. I plug in. I have all three races running at the same time. The Saudi tour ends before the rest of them because Saudi Arabia is on a slightly earlier time zone than Europe. So it kind of always goes Saudi Etoile, which is also known as Tour de Garde. I guess we can just call it that. I don't quite know why it has two names. And then, of course, the Spanish faith race, the Volta Valencia finishes last. So you kind of get this nice stagger going on. So we'll just start with the Saudi tour. In my opinion, this is the, the weakest of, of all the fields. It's they actually did a pretty good job at the course. The first year this happened, it was, or the first year they kind of revived it in 2020. Um, it was kind of a sprint fest. I, I really didn't like it. And then like COVID broke out at the race. It was like one of the first COVID cases when we didn't really know what was going on. And like all these riders got stuck in hotels there for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was a total disaster. Um, so I don't, I don't have like the, the best memories of the Saudi tour. I, I, I don't love the politics of the Saudi Arabian leadership. I'm just not a huge fan of of the race. I don't totally get why it exists. But having said that, it's kind of won me over. Um, the, the first stage was like, yeah, whatever, sprint stage, Caleb Ewan wins. But Martin Loss, he's an uh, Estonian on Bora. I never heard of this guy before. He gets second in front of Fernando Gaviria. And like, I mean, these are not crazy good sprinters, but Jasper de Boist, uh, Nicola Bonifacio, these are pretty good sprinters, so I was I was really curious. As he's kind of an older guy, he's like 28 years old. This is his first real, I guess it's not a world tour race, but like top tier race result. So I thought that was interesting. Stage two finishes on a steep, steep climb. A Colombian I, I've frankly never heard of Santiago Butrago. Butrago on Bahrain wins it, um, takes the overall lead. But most interestingly, Caleb Ewan gets six on the stage. He's only seven seconds back. I mean, that shows me Caleb Ewan is in like incredible shape, which is relevant because I'm sure he really wants to win Milano Sanremo after striking out last year. Um, the only problem with this, um, Daniel Free brought it. I mean, there's a lot of problems with this. It's like almost an impossible race to win. It's very, very difficult. Even if you go in and you're fast and in shape, there's no guarantees. But Daniel Free on the cycling podcast brought up, it's this weird dynamic where if you're so good at climbing as a sprinter and you're in the front group on the Poggio, it actually hurts you because as what happened last year, 
someone attacks and then everyone looks at you to chase it down because you're the fastest rider and if they chase it down for you you'll beat them so you kind of want to be like dangling off the back and catch up to the front group and no one know you're there and then you kind of work your way up in the funnel kilometer and win but that's enough about milano san remo stage three was uh kind of an interesting little uphill sprint through what i thought was like a charming town uh, it was like this this desert like desert mountains with palm trees I, i'm on board this sports washing is working on me but dylan gronewegen beat uh i guess he beat dan mcclay but caleb ewan i thought was the fastest rider by far in that sprint there's this kind of little pitch at the end and Gronovagan just timed it perfectly. Ewan was going probably twice as fast as him. Ewan was flying. I, I've been really impressed with Caleb Ewan so far this year. He seems like he's back to I don't know, maybe not his best because he, I mean, we haven't seen him win like major, major races, but just physically, he looks incredible. Uh, but this is a big win for Gronovagan. It's a big win for Bike Exchange. There's relegation ramifications. We'll get into that in a little bit. I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit more a little bit later, but. Even just setting that aside, this is big for Bike Exchange to get a win. That team has really been struggling since COVID hit. Um, just financially, they've been having a hard time, you know, putting everything together. They like cut a lot of guys' salaries. They've they've really fallen off a cliff performance-wise. So they just need wins anyway they they can get them. Grunewagen was a late addition. They got him mid-contract from Yumbo. It was like one of the rare transfer deals where it works for everyone. Yumbo didn't have room for him because they have so many good GC talents and. Wout Van Aert can go to a Grand Tour as like a GC contender, a domestique, and a sprinter all at the same time. So it made Grunewagen a bit redundant. Um, yeah, so they basically just laid off his contract to Bike Exchange, who was more than happy to get a guy who can win races, um, potentially could win Grand Tour stages. Before he's, his big crash at the Tour of Poland in 2020, I thought he was one of the best sprinters in the world. He's definitely not been the same since that crash. But this is like starting to build the resume that like maybe he is back. Maybe he's coming back and he could win a Tour de France stage, which would be huge for that team. And then stage four today, this, this was the hardest stage. There was a climb about, it like topped out like 9K from the finish. It was hard. I guess it, they said it was two kilometers at 11% average. I almost thought it looked steeper. Like it was like 17%, which if you don't know what, if that means nothing to you, just think really steep, like the steepest road you've ever been on. That's about like that. And it's like that for two kilometers straight. And this young Belgian kid on Lotto, who I've never heard of, Maxim von Giels, dropped everyone and then solos to the finish. Um, has 40 seconds on an interesting dynamic here for second and third. Luca Mezgek gets second. Tim DeClerc gets third. Those are both like kind of sprinters. So I think that just shows you people. And then Danny Van Poppel's fourth. People don't understand how good of climbers and just like how fit a lot of these top level like, quote unquote sprinters are uh, people might go out and you ride like a local climb or it's like a hilly route or you even do a hard race you know i even know like guys who are like elite elite american racers who only race in the u.s who you know think that like danny van poppel would not be able to you know beat them on like a really tough american course it's like i guarantee you they can like a lot of these guys could maybe even win like local hill climbs um, against like climbing specialists, like U.S. climbing specialists, um, they're incredibly fit, incredibly good. <laughs> and even though they might not look, I remember Fabio Jakobsen, who we'll talk about in a little bit, who is looking really, really good this year. He was on the time trial bike at the Volta Spania last year. My, um, we were, I was on vacation with my in-laws, and my mother-in-law walked in the room and just thought, like, oh wow, is that like a fan? Like, what's going on? Like, that guy looks terrible on a bike. 
Um, and then of course he goes on to like have a fantastic Vuelta Spania and we mentioned it to her every time he won a stage. It's quite funny. Um, we still bring it up, but it does bring up a good point of just like, they can kind of look like fish out of water when they're not sprinting. And you might think they look, you know, big and bulky or like if you're being unkind, like fat tubby, um, they're not. I mean, if you see these guys in real life, like they're so lean, they're so fit. Um, they just look big compared to like the super, super, super skinny um, uh, all-rounders or climbers that they race against. Uh, these guys are so fit. I mean, it, it's this should be like a wake-up call to people. If you think you could like drop a world tour sprinter on a climb, you cannot. I mean, this, this climb was so hard and we have three sprinters in the top four. So um, I just thought that was like an interesting little data point. And I think Maxime can tomorrow is could be a tricky stage for him, but it's not particularly like hard stage. I think he is going to win the overall. That's big for him, big for Lotto. This is his first pro win. We'll also talk about why the heck Lotto and Kofidis are doing so well this year. Um, uh, we'll get to that in a little bit more when we talk about the relegation. But on to Tour de Garde, Etoile de Bessege. Uh, today, Benjamin Thomas on Kofidis wins super impressive solo win, um, being chased by Alberto Berriol and Tobias Holland Johansson on the Uno X team. Uno X gets third and fourth on the stage. I, I cannot say how impressed I am by this team. This is basically like a development team. It's like a small Norwegian team that just rolls up to these races against, I mean, top, top, top world tour teams with really good riders. I mean, these might not be like the biggest races of the year, but the results they can pull out is so impressive. I mean, think they get two riders before any other team gets their second rider in. Um, I mean, Kofidis gets first and fifth. That'd be the closest. And then, you know, EF gets second and and then they don't get another rider until Owen Duel at 49th. I mean, so what Uno X is doing is it's really mind-blowing. I mean, they just crank out these Norwegian talents. Like, it's like there's a conveyor belt of them. It's, it's so impressive. Um, but Thomas, I just did my uh, BTP net breakdown for Kofidis for the coming year and what I thought of their transfer season. And he was one of the riders I flagged that they picked up this transfer season that I thought was a good pickup. And immediately he, you know, that he pays dividends. I mean, I really like the pickup. He's a great time trialist. I mean, obviously a very strong road racer. He can apply his time trialing ability to road racing very well, as he showed with the win. Um, holding off Betty All is no slouch. He's a Tour de Flanders winner. He is looking really, really good this year. So great job by him to pull him off. I think he could potentially win this race overall because there's just a time trial and an uphill finish left, which, you know, maybe they could shake him loose on the uphill finish tomorrow, but he's looking pretty fit. Um, other notes, I thought Betty All was, was really impressive. I mean, I think he's been impressive for the past week. I watched him at the one day GP La Marseillaise on Sunday, and I thought he was maybe the most impressive rider in that race, even though he didn't win. You don't really want to win that race. And he's just been active. He's been in the mix every race since then. Um, seems to be building really well into a spring. This is like a great sign. You want to be fit, but not like super sharp. You don't want to be overcooked. I know these are vague words, but um, it, it's really hard to explain the difference between like being fit and on the right track and like being so sharp that you're just destroying people. Like if you're too sharp too early, you're going to fall off the other side of that pyramid and tumble, tumble, tumble down and have a terrible season, which you see happen all the time. And this was shockingly the second win in a row for Kofidis. They won stage two the day before with Brian Cocard. 
Um, you might, it's crazy about Brian Cocard is you might think that he's like a washed up former, like great sprinter. He's, he's only 29. This is his first win in a year and a half. Um, never won a world tour race before. He won his first pro race ever back at this, at this race. And I think 2013 when he was 20 years old. So, um, talented rider. Um, he beat Mads Pedersen. It was a, it was a really difficult uphill finish, but this is another rider that Kofidis picked up in the off season and they've got to feel pretty good about two, two riders. They pick up in the off season. They get two wins from in two days, a, a pretty good endorsement of their transfer strategy there. Um, and that's a team that this team stinks. I mean, they're so bad. And, and if I pull up right now, I have their, I have the relegation chart pulled up. They're currently in 20th. The, only the top 18 teams at the end of the year. They, they, it's, a, it's a really confusing system. I wish they would have done this differently, but they combine your UCI points from 2020, 2021, and 2022. They added up the top 18 teams, make the world tour. If you're not in the top 18, sorry, you're in the second division. Um, it, it's not terrible for Kofidis, but for like, uh, if that happened to EF, it'd be devastating. The team would probably fold. So the stakes are, are pretty high. And Kofidis is clearly not messing around. They're coming out swinging this year. All right, so the Volta Valencia. Today was the queen stage, I guess. I guess is that's what we're calling it. Um, it, was, it was pretty cool, pretty exciting. Multiple climbs. I mean, not like high alpine climbs, but the final climb was like a goat path. It was tiny. Um, and it went over really, really, really tough gravel. Like some of the toughest gravel I've ever seen in a road race. Like really chunky, almost like Kansas gravel, if you've ever done like um, unbound, I believe is what they call it now. It used to be called the Dirty Kanza. Almost, almost like uh, unrideable on a road bike, but um, it definitely caused problems. Rimko Evanapol was complaining about it before. He thought it. They went to recon the stage and they didn't ride the road because they thought it was a mistake on the GPS because that's how rough the road was. But Evanapol, after winning. Winning stage one fairly easily. Um, like he won stage one with a counter. It's like a classic Evanapol, like counterattack on a short funnel climb. Just gets a massive gap initially, and then he's so arrow that he he just pummeled everyone, and no one could pull him back. He looked like he was riding to like an easy overall win. But as soon as I hit the gravel here, it was clear he was in trouble. And Alexander Vlasov, the Russian, on he's now on Bora. Um, I bought so much Vlasov stock in the year 2020. I am I am underwater on this Vlasov stock. I thought he was like the next big thing before Pogacar was the next big thing. I backed the wrong horse, obviously, but I thought Vlasov really managed that gap well on stage one. He he didn't go too deep. He never panicked. He just kind of like chugged in 16 seconds down. You think, ah, oh, now he's with time bonuses. He's 19 seconds back. That's kind of a big gap in a five-day stage race with no time trial. You know, you probably can't win. But they, as soon as they hit that gravel today, Jakob Fulsang, who is an ex-pro mountain biker, very good, very good on, on off-road services, goes to the front, drills it. Um, and I, I think if this, he's 36 now, I think if, if this was even 2020, he just, he just drops everyone here and wins the stage and probably wins the race overall. But I thought he showed his age big time. And he actually overcooked a corner and to unclip Vlasov comes to the front, and once you're in the front on a surface like that, it's so hard to come around people. And Remco got right onto his wheel. There's a there's like video breakdown of this in today's newsletter on beyondthepeloton.substack.com. But Remco gets right on his wheel, and what that does is it means everyone behind Remco is dependent on Remco because with gravel like this, you can you can there's really one fast line. You can't, you don't really want to be going around people. And that's what happened when they first hit it. Rimco is really far back. 
Um, if you remember, he was tripped up by the gravel stage, stage 11 at the Giro d'Italia last year. Um, he was looking really good before that, and he just struggles so much on these alternative surfaces, we'll call them. And it was the same thing. He was, he was immediately uncomfortable. Um, it was like all the classic things, riding too far back because you're nervous. Um, he was having to like go out and go around people, using a ton of energy just to, just to stay in the group. As soon as Vlasov goes to the front, there's like a little bit of a gap forming. Vlasov looks back and like he sees the opportunity because he knows if Remco can't follow him, the others can't go around Remco. It's just too hard to step out on a loose surface like that. So Vlasov drops Remco, drops everyone else. By the time they get, there's like a kilometer left by the time they get back onto the paved surface, but the damage is already done by them. People are trying to blow by Evan a pole to, to catch Vlasov, but he is he's cooking. They can't pull him back. He wins the stage by 14 seconds over Carlos Rodriguez from Ineos, uh, Ineos rider I'd never heard of actually. Um, and Enric Mas in third from Movistar. And Evan a pole really cracks on this. I mean, he finished 41 seconds behind Vlasov. He's now 32 seconds back in the GC because of those time bonuses. So, yeah, super impressive from Vlasov. Kind of, um, I, I, you don't want to read too much into any of these races. I mean, this is still so early. Um, and I think a lot of the people get way too excited about these early races and then none of us ever remember them. But I did think this was like a big step for Vlasov. I thought that he read the race so perfectly. He didn't panic. It was a bit of a, if I may say, a nervous Nelly at Astana. He never quite seemed settled. Um, and I think there was even like a, God, it was, one, it was one, during one of those grand tours during the shortened season. Maybe it was the Giro where like his stomach was like literally so unst- unsettled he like had to leave the race. But he he just I think he looks like a different rider at Bora. He looks so calm, so confident, and clearly it's agreeing with him. I mean, he looked really really strong in that finish today. So super impressed with him. Um, Evanipol, I almost I mean, so this shows us that he's just the he's so talented. Like his straight line speed and his aerodynamics on the bike are it's like really really like freakishly good but it shows us that he's still uncomfortable on loose surfaces um that that's not been taken care of and he's also not a great descender i mean that's how he crashed at lombardia in 2020 when he went off the bridge and broke his hip um so it's a little weird to me that that hasn't been addressed more head-on i mean he's on like one of the best cobbled riding teams in the world he i guess there's so much hype around him it's hard to tell like what's real and wasn't what isn't but i for a time thought he was like wanted to be like a classic specialist which you better get used to riding on uneven surfaces if you want to race in belgium and yeah it's weird that's not been addressed more um i don't know if he's like such a big star that the team can't send him to like gravel camps and maybe he would find that embarrassing but yeah i don't know i if i was his team manager or his trainer i would say yeah we're gonna spend like two months this offseason just training on off-road surfaces because that's our weak point um it's not been addressed i mean he looked so bad he couldn't get traction he was way over geared it was like all the mistakes that i would make on a steep gravel climb but i'm i'm not on one of the best teams in the world so i thought it was really weird i'm not quite sure physically why he wasn't there but perhaps he's just tired from that the big effort on stage one. I first I was thinking, well, maybe he's just not a good stage racer. But I looked back through his Palmares, quite quite a bit of one week stage race success. Um, no world tour stage. I guess there was Tour of Poland, but um, that's the only world tour stage race that he's ever won. 
but yet not like him just to really fall apart. I mean, perhaps he's just not fit yet, which, which is actually good. You don't want to be too fit this early, as I said earlier. So um, obviously don't hit the panic button on Evanapol. I guess supposedly he's not doing a grand tour until the Vuelta, which is kind of disappointing. I kind of wish he was doing this Euro. But if he is in any any of these one these hilly one day classics he's doing, he's going to be a threat at if he can be um, if he can keep building on this form. So obviously don't panic on Evanapol. But I thought this was, you know, he, he has these big performances. They're always at slightly crappy races, though, if I if I may say so. Um, and then he, I feel like he then underperforms later at big races. So maybe this is a good sign that he's building into the season a little bit slower. Um, and before I go, just a few notes on, so the day before stage two, Fabio Jakobsen won in a sprint. He looked incredible and he beat some fast guys. I mean, one Sebastian Milano from UAE team member, was in second, but he was like a full bike length behind. Elia Viviani, Matej Motoric, Alexander Kristoff. These are not slow people. Um, interesting that Evanapol was seventh. I, I didn't think he had like a finishing kick in him. So um, kind of interesting to see that. I think I still, I'm still talking about Evanapol. I still don't quite know what type of rider he is, which I find frustrating. He's 22 years old. He's, he's won like 23 pro races already, but still have not quite seen him like with the handcuffs off at a big race. So. Um, I did think that was an, I, I always thought he was like very slow at a fin- well, like he didn't really have a finishing kick, but clearly to get seventh in a sprint, you have to be pretty fast. So that was interesting, but Jakobsen quick, he's on quick step. He's clearly, clearly their number one sprinter this year. Uh, bad news from Mark Cavendish, but I still think I, I talked about this in a newsletter a few weeks ago, you know, Cavendish still has an option of just like, you know, just kind of just just do do well yourself and see if you can put pressure on Jakobsen. If Jakobsen slips up at all, maybe they bring you to the tour instead of him. But um, judging by that this performance, Jakobsen is the best sprinter in the world. I think he's he's so underrated as a sprinter. Sam Bennett, Caleb Ewan, Mark Cavendish get all the press, but Jakobsen is he's incredible. I wanted to talk about a little trend that I'm seeing so far this year that I thought was pretty interesting. So. This is the first year that there's like an official relegation fight. And as I said, the, the top eight teams will make it um, below 18, go to the second division. You know, but if you look, you know, I'll try, maybe I'll start doing like a, a once a month relegation watch piece. But if you do, if you look at it, there's like big teams below eight, the 18th line. Kofidis is 19. Ladisadal is 20. Total Energy, 21. Uno, Uno X, 22. Uno X won't make it. They don't have enough star power and they just like literally don't start enough races to make it. But so it's a it's gonna be a dogfight. Intermarche is in 17th, Israel's 16th, Movistar's 15th. Movistar's not out of the woods here. Um, if they stink it up this year, that they they had a terrible 2020. If they have another year like that, they're out of the top flight. And and what would be crazy is that a lot of it would be because Lopez left the Vuelta on the on the 20th stage if he just finishes that race and just like takes the ninth place or whatever he was going to get that's a ton of UCI points and they're probably safe so kind of an interesting little subplot there but we can see that if we go and look at the the teams with the most number of wins right now it's Lada Sudal with four which is actually they only had 12 all of last year so that's like a huge number for them to have already Kofidis number two quick step three bike exchange four they're on the hot seat two Movistar 5, Yumbo 6, Intermarche 7th. So you have 1, 2, 
three, four, five hot seat teams, relegation hot seat teams in the top seven of the wins. These guys have looked at the standing, have looked at these tables. They know that they are fighting for their lives and it shows. Um, they're probably leveraging success now at the expense of success later. Um, not a terrible strategy though. Like if you just, you know, think of Maxime who won the Saudi tour stage today. Like he's not probably not going to get a big result at a race later this year. So why not go in super, super fit, treat it like your Super Bowl, steal a bunch of points, steal a win. And you get, once you start building the confidence and you build that experience of winning, it becomes easier to win later. So I don't hate that strategy at all. Um, Lotto is probably the, that would be shocking to me if they don't make it. You know, they're a good team with good talent. I mean, Caleb Ewan is a big talent. And the fact that they're sitting in 20th right now um, and they have to leapfrog two teams to even make it into the world tour. Um, they're feeling that they are, they are under pressure and they're clearly feeling the heat, but they're off to a great start. But that's something to keep in mind as you're watching these early season races that it's not, not, all of the team's goals are created equally. Um, if you're a team like Bora, UAE, Yumbo, like any, even Enios, you're just like getting the reps in. This is basically practice for you. Um, you're not under pressure to, to bank points or to bank wins. So um, if you might think like, if you're walking away from this thinking like Lotto and Kofidis are going to be the best teams this year, um, think again. Like they, they will come back down to earth at some point. This is, a, this is like a, a thought-out strategy. Um, one thing on Ineos, I, you know, everyone knows that Egan Bernal crashed in Colombia. They had this like kind of, I guess, like satellite Colombian or South American team training camp for the South American riders in Colombia. Um, bad idea, I, th- I think. Colombia is terrible traffic. I've been learning about this more and more since his crash, but it's like known for being um, incredibly unfriendly to cyclists just because of crowded and chaotic roads. But Bernal crashes, ter- gets terrible injuries. But then um, Brandon R- Riviera, Rivera, who's a really good Colombian rider for them, also crashes and is in the hospital with Bernal right now. Um, and they had, I thought they had a team camp going on. I'm pretty sure this is correct. They had a Spanish team camp going on at the same time. Maybe the South American riders thought they could save some travel, stay at altitude, train in Colombia. But I can't imagine Ineos will do this again after having two riders in the hospital. I mean, that's a and losing them probably for the season. Um, huge loss. So a long way of saying, oh, there's a lot riding on Richard Carapaz's shoulder. Um, in my piece, I surmise that he's the only top-tier GC talent they have currently, at least for Grand Tours. And he's not looked good so far this year. Not, not, and, and I like to stress, I'm going to say again, that you don't want to read too much into this, but he's, he, I think he's looked a bit like he's feeling the pressure, and then he crashes today at Etoile de Bessege. I thought he crashed. It looked like he went down pretty hard, too. And that's a rider who does not often crash. Um, that, that would tell me almost that there's there's a lot. He can te- he knows there's a lot riding on his shoulders, and it looks like it's showing a bit. Um, highly, highly out of character for him to crash. No one wants to crash this time of year. You're, you're building up. You're doing these races to build fitness for your goals later in the year. Um, and, and even I, they might not look that bad. It's like, oh, you slide out on a descent, but you're going 40 miles an hour. It's a lot of trauma on your body. And if you have road rash, it's just takes a lot to rebuild that skin again. Um, it can, it can be incredibly disruptive to your training. So, um, something to keep an eye on there. I thought that it really stuck out to me and 
I'd imagine if they want to win like Liege, Bastogne, Liege, that Carapaz would be one of their, their lead riders for that. I know they said he's doing the Giro. I do not believe that for a second, though. I have to imagine he's going to be their leader for the Tour de France. They still have Tom Pico- the Tom Peacock card to play at the these like hilly one-day classics like Liege and Amstel. So they, they do still have a leader. I, I'm a big, and, and Pickock's doing the Giro. I'm a big Pickock fan. I guess last year I thought he was like a little overhyped. I'm like, what is everyone talking about? This guy, he's like won a couple cross races and he's coming in and he's never done anything on the road. Why is everyone freaking out about him? Um, he didn't win any World Tour wins. He didn't get any World Tour wins, but I walked away from that 2020, 2021 pretty impressed with Tom Pickock. Um, seven top tens. And there being the, the, the World Road Race Championships, where he gets sixth, and I thought he was the strongest rider in the race if he goes with Al Philippe and Al Philippe attacks. I think he wins that race. And Amstel Gold, he was a bike throw away from beating Wout Van Aert there. I thought he was stronger than Wout Van Aert that day. And just kind of, he, he's not super sharp with his racecraft. Um, I guess he's young, he's only 22 years old right now. Um, ha- doesn't have a lot of road racing experience, and it, it definitely shows when he's racing. Uh, makes a lot of mistakes, but if he, if he can if he can refine a bit of that, uh, yeah, he would be a good a good chance for Enios to to pick up a monument win, a one day monument win. Probably too light. He's he's listed at fifty eight kilograms. I can't imagine he could win a cobbled classic at that weight. It just seems way too light. I think Bernardi No is maybe the lightest rider to ever win Roubaix, and he was sixty two kilogram so i mean he could put on some weight he could get up to 62 and you know if you know could do it it's possible and you know i, I don't want to overhype pitcock but i was so impressed with his uh olympic mountain bike win combined with his performance at the road race world championships and then going into his cyclocross win uh this past weekend that you know if he's we have i don't really know if he's like a great high mountain climber but he won the world uh junior time trial championships so pretty good time trialist i'd imagine if he's a world champion he doesn't have a lot of success as like a senior time trialist but i don't think he's ever really tried so seems like if he puts his mind to it he could do pretty much whatever he wants to do on the road um so that is a silver lining for Ineos. i can't imagine that they'll put any gc pressure on him for this euro this year but be kind of interested to see what he can do there um and and in these one-day races leading into that. So that's something Ineos can look forward to in a season that's not started that well for them, I would say. They did, though, a little amendment to that. Filippo Ghana got, I believe it was seventh on the opening stage of Etoile de Bessege. That Pretty impressive. An uphill finish. If he can, I know, I know he's like won road stages at like the Giro d'Italia before, so not like I'm not breaking news here that he's like a good road racer in addition to being an amazing time trialist, but you know, if, if they could shape him into a little bit more of a road racer than he currently is, that, that's a really interesting card for them to play, especially at a race like Milano San Remo. Um, you could imagine him getting clear in that final two kilometers and no one being able to pull him back. I'll wrap it up here and I'll be back next week to talk about the end of these races. We have stage four and five of both Etoile de Bessege and Volta Valencia this weekend. And then we're on to Tour Provence then uh, next week. So, which is, I think that's to me, to me, 
that's like the real start of the road racing season. Um, you start getting some pretty interesting racing around that point. And then before we know, we're into Perry Nice, we're into the Spring Classics, and we're off. So have a great weekend. Enjoy the racing. If you don't enjoy the racing, I will recap it for you. So just sign up for that newsletter. And have a great week. Bye.